Hi, I'm Anton Stettner. Today we're going to talk about land development, real estate, one of the best games ever invented. We're going to talk about zoning. We're going to talk about highest and best use. Thanks for hanging out. I'm Anton Stettner and I love real estate. I think it's the best game ever invented. We're going to talk about land development. Absolutely. I'm Philip Zerberug and Anton's one of my mentors and I'm excited to learn from him. So let's talk about it. Perfect. Um, what is the first question I should ask when looking at a land development project? I think the very first thing you have to think about is what is the zoning? And then what's the two biggest things that kill land development projects? So here in Washington state, especially Western Washington, the two biggest things that kill it is access to sewer or septic. And then the second one is wetlands. We live in the evergreen state. Mm -hmm. So everything is soaking wet and wetlands all have buffers coming off of it. So those are your very first you know, questions. Do I have access to the property? What is the zoning in relation to this property? Will that zoning meet my intended use? Then where's the location of sewer or could we do on-site septic if it's in a rural environment? With the... Uh, and then with the wetlands, we want to try to get a wetland guy there as, as quickly as possible. Mm. So generally speaking, during a beginning part of a feasibility, that's one of the first people we get on site. And we at least need them to quickly walk the site in order to determine, hey, is there wetlands on this property? What category are these wetlands? What's the buffer coming off of them? But those are the two biggest things that kill it. Sewer, wetlands. Yeah, uh, salmon habitat is a huge one. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. So, it and you you'd be surprised at the setbacks for those. That I've huge, seen. huge. Um, the smallest setback starts at fifty feet, and then they go up to five hundred. You know, a thousand. Mm -hmm. And so you could have acres and acres of property, and have you know very little be actually usable at the end of the day. There are also, when we're talking about like wetlands specifically, you can go look for what's called a critical area site plan, mm -hmm. okay, which is wetlands that's been recorded against a property. Um, that's a, uh, a CASP. Um, and those are documents that are recorded at the county. So you can click through county records or like the zoning map and look for recorded CASPs. Then you could pull the neighbors and just make a general assumption. If we're looking at this parcel here and the parcel next to it, and there's a CASP recorded across it and it's buffered, just assume the wetland's going to extend right across it. Absolutely. Which then is going to define our buildable area. So when we're thinking about subdivision specifically, what we're looking for is how much buildable area do we have? And then we can figure out, okay, based on that buildable area, based on the zoning, and then, like we talked about before, maybe taking 25% out for roads, curb, gutters, sidewalks, things like that. Mm -hmm. That's the approximate density I'm going to be able to put onto that property. Okay. So, continuing on with that, we, we just talked about a number of things. Yep. Sewer, wetlands, yep. power, zoning. Yep. Uh, let's move forward with, the, with that. Where do we find the information for the zoning? Yep. And uh, we'll get into the others in a minute. Okay. Yeah. So... Zoning in Washington state is uh, governed by the Growth Management Act. So the Growth Management Act came out and it established a long-term comprehensive plan to basically pinch growth into corridors. 
you know, AKA up and down the I-5 corridor, just for an example. Inside of each one of those corridors, then the counties and the cities are given what's called a UGA. The UGA is the urban growth area. Inside the urban growth area is where you get things that can be subdivided into smaller lots. Cities have a UGA, counties have a UGA in Washington state. Now realize in all other states and all across the country, generally speaking, there is some type of other governing thing like a UGA that functions to control their zoning and their suburban sprawl too. Unless we go to places like Texas or the Midwest, well, they'll let you build anything anywhere. (laughs) Not the same in Washington. So the first question when we're looking at like a piece of property is, okay, what county is it in? Mm-hmm. Now, based on where it's at in the county, is it inside of the, a county or a city? And then when we look at the county or the city, is it inside Snohomish County's UGA or Lake Stevens' UGA, just to use it as an example? Okay. Whichever municipality it's in, once again, whether it's inside or outside the UGA, that's going to be the governing body for that particular project. So it's always a city or a county. So let's say we go and we look at the map and we realize it's in King County. And then we realize it's in the city of Shoreline. And so it's inside of Shoreline's UGA. Then you would go to the city of Shoreline and pull their zoning map off of, generally speaking, planning and development services. And from planning and development services, you're going to then be able to see the zoning map for that particular parcel. Never trust, ever, 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 a third-party service only trust the source. So only trust the city, the county for the actual zoning. Most third-party services are incorrect because those zoning maps update on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Even if you download them, it may have changed since the last time. So for an important project, you want to look every single time. Okay. So we've talked about the land itself and how it's zoned. Yep. You need certain things to be able to build there. Yep. So where am I going to find the information for, let's start with sewer. Most, uh, once again, let's just keep going with Shoreline just to, to be on the same page. So if it was in the city of Shoreline, then we go figure out who is control of that particular sewer district. Mm-hmm. And we go to that sewer district and just like zoning, they have a sewer map that's available. So you can generally go pull the sewer map from the sewer district or what's called public works. Mm -hmm. In a smaller municipality, it's going to be public works and the planning department are going to be the same department. Mm -hmm. The bigger the city gets, it generally starts to break into two. And then there is places like uh, in Everett that's serviced by multiple sewer districts, Muckleteal, Alderwood, you know, and they, you won't know until you just go pull the service. Once you figure out, okay, it's in Shoreline, it's covered by this sewer district, then you would want to go pull the sewer as builts for that development project. Generally speaking, on a map, what they do is they show you where the manholes finish. So you can see, oh, this is right at my, my, the parcel I'm looking at, or it's three parcels away. But until we get the as-built, we don't know where the sewer is physically located. Also, be prepared to be frustrated. All of these cities and municipalities, they build as-built and they're wrong. 
or they were really old and so they weren't recorded correctly. And as built, here's exactly what it is. It'll say the slope of the sewer line, the depth of the sewer line, the size of the sewer line, and where each one of the manholes, cleanouts, things like that are located. Once again, you they're generally right, but I would say 30% of the time, they're completely incorrect. We did that uh, townhome project in the city of Marysville, and they said, uh, the purchaser actually said to us, and this was a mistake that we made, and it ended up costing us money. That's why I bring it up. The purchaser said, well, did you go locate the water line? And we're like, no. The Esbelt says it's right there, and there's an easement for it. And they're like, but did you physically locate it? And we're like, ah, we didn't with this one because we'd never got around to it. So I went and located it, and not kidding, it was 17 feet away from where it was supposed to be. Oh, wow. So they had to move this gigantic water main. Mm-hmm. Well, that, you know, I'll just throw it on the table. That bill starts at 10 grand and goes to like 150. So as we're doing any one of these projects, we start to immediately want to start confirming the utilities. And as they start to go through the entitlement process, we then want to confirm the location of those utilities. The next thing people usually ask is like, okay, what about water? Okay, so we got wastewater, sewer. Well, what about water? The water is generally handled uh, you know, by the same district. However, sometimes they are separate districts. So you could have a sewer district in charge of one and a water district in charge of another and have them not be the same people. Mm-hmm. But the same thing applies. You go get the map. You figure out the size of the main they have. You get the as-built to figure out how deep it is and where it's physically located. Thing to understand just about water and sewer. The deeper it is, the more expensive it will cost you. The further you have to run it, the less you can pay for the land. Simple. Makes perfect sense, Yep. actually. Um, the one thing we haven't hit on is power. Power, absolutely. In Washington, you know, I mean, most of power is PUD. You know, in other areas, there's different utility districts, but it's the same thing applies. You go to the utility district, and with them, you basically make a request. It's same idea, slightly different. Mm. Hey, would this parcel right here be serviced? Is there enough power available? Then they say, yes, the, the local transformer is good. Or they say, no, you've got to no- drop another transformer. And then your next question is, how much? Mm-hmm. And how far do we need to run it? And then is this overhead or underground? When we're doing big development projects, it's all going to be underground. When we're talking about like maybe a, a rural lot, it's probably still going to be overhead. Overhead, so much cheaper than running it underground. It makes sense. You just pound a pole in the ground and... Hang some wire. Put the pole in, the poles, you know, 2000 bucks. hang the wire, good to go. What happens when you got to put it underground mm-hmm. is you dig a giant trench, you put in everything for them, and they come out, they look at it and go, yep, looks good, and you basically do everything, and then they charge you to hook it up. Mm-hmm. Good old <laughs> hookup costs. Yes, correct, sir. Um, okay, you've asked how much it costs a bunch of times. Yep. Tell me some different ways that you would fund some of these projects. Ideally, you'd fund a development project with your own money in cash. That's ideal. Guess what? We all can't start there. Mom and dad didn't leave me you know, $20 million for me to go play a developer. Mm-hmm. So what we started for uh, our projects was on the complete opposite end. No money. We don't know how to do it. Just scrappy. 
I think a really wise thing that people can do is go find a builder developer to work for or to have as a client if you're a real estate broker and then bring them projects because they're going to teach you everything they know. And what you want to do is you want to define their criteria, their buy box, and how they purchase. As you see more of these, you get to see how they fund them. So how you fund a development project, one, ideal situation, cash. Mm -hmm. Two, Generally speaking, it's going to be 75% loan to cost, not loan to value. If the project's worth $2 million finished, and it's going to cost you $1.5 to do this whole project, the bank is going to expect that you have 25% of $1.5 million into the project to get the building pads ready, whether that's uh, commercial building pads, uh, multifamily, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. They want to see that skin in the game. Now, we missed the, the wonderful, awesome old school days in the early and mid 2000s when they'd, I mean, they'd fund you like to 90% loan to value, 95% loan to value, 85% loan to value, 80, which meant you could go 100% loan to cost. That was also part of the reason for the last downfall. Developers having skin in the game is good for us long term but it's also what's making housing more expensive. Yeah, it costs more to put them in, it's gonna cost more to buy them. And holding costs and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, one, cash. Two, go to the bank with 25% in cash, loan to cost. Three, go raise a big bag of money from friends and family. So, if you put together a good development project, let's just go back to that $2 million example. Mm -hmm. It's worth $2 million, and let's just say it's 10 finished single-family lots, and it would cost you $1.5 million to do it. So I have a half-million-dollar spread. Well, if I went to friends and family and raised the 25% down from friends and family, I'd probably raise more than that, to be honest. I would probably raise 30% or 35%. That way we had a buffer or a cushion because... With a development project specifically, it's not if something's going to break, it's when something's going to break and how much money is that problem going to cost. Absolutely. Recently in Gold Bar, uh, we were putting in a foundation and I kid you not, there was a rock the size of a Volkswagen bug. Well, that's a multi-thousand dollar problem to just immediately pull that foundation or excuse me, that rock out to put the foundation in. Mm -hmm. If you don't have buffers, margins of safety built in, so every development project should have a 5% contingency, maybe even a 10, but a margin of safety and buffers built in to protect you. So we go raise that money with our friends and family, and then we offer them a return. In this example, you could probably keep 20% of the project using other people's money. Another way to do it is same idea. Instead of raising it with friends and family, you put together some type of a partnership or a syndication, and you go raise it from accredited or non-accredited investors uh, and put it together as a partnership that way. That way is a little more expensive um, because the... Uh, you know, and it just takes more time. And depending on how big your little friends and family deal, like if your friends and family deal was bigger than two people, it's going to cost you just as much money as a syndication anyway. When, I, when you go and raise capital to put together a development deal, know that you're going to spend a minimum of five grand in legal fees. If it's a larger deal or I'm doing some type of a syndication or big partnership, I'm going to spend five to 50 grand in fees. It's just something to be aware of as you put these together is you want to put together the right paperwork mm -hmm. and you want to have the right funding. 
for people that are just getting started, my recommendation is go hunt down 200 deals. Learn the hunting of the deal, the structuring of the deal. Watch them get into trouble. Watch them make mistakes. Learn from every single one of those. Then bet your own money. Yeah, and you learn along the way. You learn along the way. I like it. And then I offered up in the beginning uh, for all the you know builders and developers I worked for, I literally just offered up my services for free. I brought them deals. I made commissions. But I did extra work and extra grunt work with all of their projects just so I would learn more. And I sat in on their meetings and things like that because I wanted to sharpen that skill as fast as humanly possible. Makes sense. So I'm trying to sit in on your stuff. <laughs> I get it, sir. I get it. Um, so what we just talked about, I had one more question, but um, that brought up a second question. Yeah, we'll start ahead. with this one. Um, how do you determine the best use for a property? Ooh, yes. Great question. In land development, what we call that is we best use is actually called highest and best use. And highest and best use, one, may depend on that individual's box and their business model. To determine the highest and best use for a property is you have to go in and you've got to look at, okay, what is the zoning on the property, number one? And then you go into the use table. So we go and look up a zoning and let's just say the zoning is mixed use. Then we go to that municipality, once again, the city or the county. We look at the uh, use table to see what is a permitted use in the mixed-use zoning. Okay, so generally speaking, that's going to be multifamily, multifamily retail, just retail, you know, something of that nature. Well, if my client is doing an adult family home, that may or may not work in that zoning. I might have to have general commercial mm -hmm. or a high-density multifamily. So you look at the zoning, you look at the use table, and you look to see what the permitted uses are. Just because something is permitted doesn't mean it's economically viable on that particular property. I'm going to give you an example so we understand what we're talking about. So there are municipalities that allow what's called density credits. And this applies in multifamily or like townhomes, for example, mm -hmm. where the max density may be 100 units on this property. But I could pay for density credits and I could get it to 150 apartment units. What that comes down to is how much does the density credit cost? What is the finished product's value and is the differential between that credit, my finished product value, the price, and the headache of getting it there worth it? The mistake we make as land developers is sometimes we try to overdo a project. And so what we do is we overcomplicate it by adding too many units or too much detail to something when it would just be better to just get through it faster. You look at it and you go, wait a second, the cost of the density credit is 30 grand a unit. But based on this pro forma, I can only pay 15 grand an apartment unit. That's probably not going to make sense. Flip it around. Based on the pro forma, I'll be into it 40 grand a unit for this apartment unit. Oh, to pay for extra units is only 30. This may still work. However, maybe I started at garden style. And at some point with a certain number of units, I have to switch to podium parking, a.k.a. that big cement box that lifts it off the ground mm -hmm. where you park underneath. As soon as it switches to podium parking, because I've over-densified it, well, I'm not sure if that's really a word. <laughs> Run with it's, it. It's got too high of density. <laughs> then 
that cost in the podium parking may not make the project financially viable. So er what we do every single time is we look at the use table. We try to figure out what its highest yield is there. You know, multifamily, mixed use, adult family home, whatever it may be, you know, retail center. Then we start having to chop it down because you're going to lose some for parking. You're going to lose some for amenities. And it may, may not make financial sense to totally max out a parking lot. Mm -hmm. or to max out the project. An interesting thing that happens to small builder developers and to big builder developers is a lot of times there will be an existing structure there, a house, a small strip mall. And the zoning may look good and you go in for the highest and best use, right? We're looking through the permitted uses and we see, oh man, there's four houses here now, but I could build a 40 unit apartment complex. The problem is, is what is it worth as four houses? Because it may not make financial sense today to bulldoze those four houses. Mm -hmm. So a cool investor move that uh, one of our clients has done a lot of over the years is they will buy something with a, with a good zoning underneath it. Or they'll buy it right on the edge of like an up zoning, like a commercial zoning. Okay. So here's a strip mall to your left, and on the right is the single-family house. Mm -hmm. They would buy that single-family house right there for today's value and then just sit on it until the zoning got increased for that parcel. It's a great way to make money. Absolutely. But the thing we have to be really careful of is see... As a developer, I can only pay land value. If the structures there are worth more than the land, then its highest and best use today is the existing structure. Does it mean we wouldn't buy it? No, we may still buy it. We may buy it and just sit, sit, sit on it for the next you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. This could be a question that might need a whole nother uh, <laughs> 30 minutes, but let me ask it anyway. Now that you've talked about where you get all the info and all that, yep. how do you go about determining the value of the land that you're going to purchase. Yep. How you go about determining the land of any development project you're going to purchase is you have to build some type of a pro forma. People get too into their spreadsheets and they build these 30-page spreadsheets. You do need a 30-page spreadsheet, but you also need a one-page napkin math spreadsheet. You need to be able to develop this napkin math for whatever product it is that you're building. And all of it is based off of the finished value of the product that's being built there. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if we're going to build a 40-unit apartment complex there, what would be those 40 units? What would they rent for? And what is that building worth when we're done? Now that I know what that building is worth, based on full occupancy and a cap rate, okay, not what it costs me to build it, what it, what it actually values at. Now, if I know what that is, I can then back it all the way back through. Go, okay, here's what the building is. Here's what it would cost me to construct it. Here's what it would cost me to develop it. Here's where I include my profit. Here's how much I can pay for the property. Here's my carrying costs, my soft costs. So you have to include your permitting, your surveying, your entitlements, mm -hmm. your soft costs, your contingency. I've got to take it through the civil construction, a.k.a. the dirt work. Then I've got to take it through the vertical construction, a.k.a. building it. But that's really, like to just boil it down, make it really simple. What's the finished product worth? Back out all my expenses, including profit, 
that's what I can pay for the raw dirt. I feel like you need a whiteboard yes, so that we can really dig into this. Uh, and, and we have to dig in over time. What you and I will dig into specifically is each one of the items because it's different when we're talking about a 20 unit multifamily. It's different when we're talking about a 20 unit multifamily with mixed use on the bottom. It's different when we're talking about 10 duplexes instead of like a three-story building. It's different when we're talking about buying a single family home over here or a single family lot in Lake Stevens and building one house on it. Each one is slightly different. And so as we hunt for our builders, our developers, our investors, and ourselves, what our goal or what we have to figure out is what is their criteria? Mm-hmm. What do they buy? What's that buy box look exactly like? And then as we hunt, we know, cool, RSG Homes buys that one. Cool, Land Pro buys that one. Cool, Smoots buys that one. Because you'll just bump into things where you're, the spidey sense, and this is what we'll teach over time, that spidey sense will go off and you go, that's a deal, mm-hmm. Okay. Now, it may not be a deal that we immediately buy, but we still might start to figure the base out just so we can hand it to someone else. You know, Mr. Reed, one of those guys. Yeah. You just keep giving me more questions to ask. Yep. What's a buy box? Buy box, aka criteria. So a lot of new investors and developers, they, they don't know what I just said. People got to take this all the way back. Why are you doing this? What's your goal? Once you know your goal, Okay, so your goal is to own 100 rental units. And I'm making up your goal, right? But let's just say my goal is to own 100 rental units. Once I know the goal, then I can start to back in. Well, okay, are those 100 rental units, how am I going to own them? Well, I want to own 50 multifamily and 50 single family. Ooh, now we're getting real specific. Yeah. Okay, well, what do I feel comfortable with? I feel comfortable with 1990 and newer construction. Oh, now we're getting even more specific. In ideal world, an investor starts with their goals first and then develops criteria by which they make purchasing decisions that lead them towards those goals. And our job is to help the builder, the developer, the investor dial in that buy box and that criteria so that we can best help and serve them. And then in the meantime, we're also doing it for ourselves too. We're constantly weeding it in. So for example, how many Airbnbs do I own? Zero. Why? It's currently outside of my goals and my buy box. That is an active type of real estate investing. I'm only interested in passive real estate investing. I don't need another job. I don't need someone telling me it's out of toilet paper. I don't care. Okay. I like properties. We lease them to for a year. Mm -hmm. Then we don't have to talk to them. Yeah. Just forget about it and get paid. Bingo. That's Mm -hmm. passive. In my long-term goals, is it on there to own Airbnbs? Yes. When I have the right person to run them and I can go grab five of them all at once. I really don't have anything else right at this point. Awesome, I feel dude. like in the future we need to we need a whiteboard and I want to ask you some nitty gritty stuff. And and, and I think with each one of these, it's like each one individually because this is helping me while I'm helping you. So I appreciate it. Okay, perfect. Thank you, everybody.